Hello, you're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast brought to you by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and those seeking Bible truth. This episode is called Bible Contradictions Debunked. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And so in this podcast, the speaker debunks the atheist claim that the Bible has many contradictions. Anything can be seen to be contradictory when taken out of context. Context. Those who are genuinely seeking the truth of the matter will find it. So this podcast is about an hour long, 52 minutes to be exact. Hope you enjoy it. Um, if you've got any comments or questions, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And so until next time, may God bless you in your studies. So here's one statement which says that the Bible is full of contradictions. That's one view. An alternative view is that the Bible is consistent. Now, if we look at those, we can see quite clearly there's a contradiction there. Two opposing statements or ideas. Both of these cannot be true. Now, with this contradiction, the implications of of either proposition have massive impacts on history on society, how we conduct ourselves today, how we conduct our own personal lives. And it even has implications on to what happens when we die. So it's a pretty important question to answer. If the first proposition is true, then the message of the book, the Bible, is discredited and it can't be trusted and therefore it can be dismissed which is perhaps a view that most people in the world would take today. However, if the second proposition is true, then we must make a serious attempt at understanding the claims and the message of the book and then living what that book says in our life. So there's a smaller minority of the world that perhaps holds to that second view. Now, it's interesting, though, that these two opposing groups will hold dogmatically to their claim. For those who hold to the first view, and they're generally bunched um, in a group of people called atheists who will dismiss the Bible and the existence of God on the basis that the Bible is full of contradictions and that therefore it can't be true. And uh, if we just take a look a couple of slides on, Caleb, just click through that one onto the next slide. Here's a view from the American Humanist Association, which has the slogan, Good Without God, which tells you a lot already. Uh, Here's what they say about Bible contradictions. They say the Bible is an unreliable authority because it contains numerous contradictions. Logically, if two statements are contradictory, at least one of them is false. The biblical contradictions therefore prove that the book has many false statements and is not infallible. So that's their view. They are a group of atheists. They call themselves humanists. And they dismiss God and they dismiss the Bible based on the fact that the book, God's word, is full of contradictions, has numerous contradictions in it. So they hold dogmatically to that claim. Christians, on the other hand, claim that the amazing consistency of the Bible amongst most unlikely odds as one of the great proofs that the Bible is true and also therefore then that the author of that book, as claimed in the Bible, God, is, is real and someone that needs to be believed. So as I say, two two claims, both opposing, both can't be true, but those who hold them to be true stick dogmatically to them. So which one is true? Well, as the title suggests, I hold to the second view as a believer in God and his word, the Bible. And in my life, I continue to be amazed by its consistency and its complexity, and I, I hold it up as as one of the major proofs of God's existence alongside 
a number of others. And my aim this evening then is to attempt to debunk this view of, of the humanist who wrote this uh, little statement here. More than that, though, hopefully I'm going to provide a little bit more of a broader context so that we can each think about how we think about the subject and um, come to some conclusions on it ourselves. All right, let's just go to the next slide. The next section I've got here titled is Contradiction or Not? Question mark. So what I want to look at here is really it's important that we understand what a contradiction is and really if what we're looking at is a contradiction or not. Um, is it a real contradiction? And if it is, um, then it could be potentially problematic, but not necessarily. And why do I say that? Well, inconsistencies and, and contradictions exist in life. I think the more you look for them, and often the older we get in life, the more we will find contradictions. We presented one at the start of the talk. Perhaps another contradiction is that there are many and different religions and different interpretations of scripture itself. That itself is a con contradiction. In fact, the Bible itself points out many contradictions and it uses contradiction as a literary device. And we'll come across one of those at, at the end where the Bible actually deliber de deliberately puts a contradiction in the text to make a point. So my point here is if you just um, click Caleb on the next point, a contradiction we need to look at because it may or may not disprove the Bible, and often there, there can be contradictions put deliberately in the text that don't necessarily discredit the Bible. In fact, I don't believe they do discredit the Bible. They're there for a reason. Um, let's think perhaps about Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he observes many contradictions and injustices in life. Here's a, here's a couple that he calls out in his book, Ecclesiastes. He says, labor is empty and a sore travail. He says, laughter is not happiness. Uh, that might be, you know, appear to be contradictory. Solomon says, it's better to mourn. Better than, better than what? Well, he says, it's better to mourn. That would appear contradictory. Solomon in Ecclesiastes observes a rich fool and a poor wise man. And that would also appear to be contradictory. How does a fool become rich, yet a wise man become poor? And in the end, Solomon concludes that life is empty and a meaningless cycle. So what is life all about? He's questioning. Um, so Solomon uses contradiction a lot, and we'll come back to that in a second. What about Jesus when he uh, uses a speech um, to... Uh, and on the Sermon of the Mount, and he starts that with a whole lot of Beatitudes. And these are short, contradictory statements. For example, Jesus says there, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So how can someone who's mourning be comforted? That appears to be a contradictory statement. So we need to establish, are these real contradictions or perhaps are they pretend contradictions? Well, the first, the next one we want to look at is um, this idea of a paradox. If we just click down to the next, next section. So we need to establish whether a contradiction really is a contradiction or is it a paradox? Now, as we know, a paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet is perhaps true. And I think the Beatitudes are a good example of this. They're, they're not contradictions at all. They appear contradictory in their statements, but really they are paradoxes. And what Jesus is doing is drawing a point out of this. He's talking about two different time periods. He's talking about life today, and he's comparing it and contrasting it with life in the kingdom, and he uses a paradox to make that comparison real for us. So a present suffering, those that mourn presently, will receive their comfort in the future, a future reward. So a contradiction might not be a contradiction at all, it might be a paradox. What about the next one? 
The next one is sort of a bit more broader, perhaps, is apparent contradictions. Again, like a paradox, these may on the surface seem contradictory, but on further investigation have a reasonable explanation. And um, the example I gave about the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon wrote is a book full of contradiction. In fact, the book is one big contradiction. It's a proof by contradiction. Those who like maths will, um, will understand what I'm saying there. Solomon talks under two different contexts in Ecclesiastes. He talks about life without God and he talks about life with God. In fact, the majority of his book, he's, he's describing life without God and it's one big um, experiment that Solomon goes through to, to prove that life without God is meaningless. Therefore, we need to find God. That's how we, that's how we find true happiness is uh, the conclusion that Solomon comes to is to lead us to God. The meaningless of this present life is to lead us to fear God and keep his commands. That's the conclusion of his book. So, and, he, and he writes the book in this clever literary device using a contradiction to highlight that point, to, to lead people to the point that he found in his life, that without God, it's meaningless. Therefore, let's fear God and keep his commands. We'll come across some apparent contradictions. The next one is um, perhaps we can't explain the contradiction due to our lack of knowledge or perhaps the lack of information that's been provided to try and understand um, that contradiction. Um, so that could also be a another um, thing that we come across when we're looking at contradictions. All right, let's go to the next slide. And we've got to think about um, context. Context is key, both when it comes to looking at the Bible and what it's actually trying to do, and then also when we come to look at, at actual contradictions that are present, uh, presented within. So context is in, important. Let's come to think about the Bible, what it is and why it was written, and that will then establish the context for helping the Bible explain itself. Now, the, the verse that I, I like most of all when we come to understanding the Bible and its claims is 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that most of us will know very well. So we'll just bring that up, and I've got it on screen here. So 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly finished unto all good works. So in bold there, the Bible makes this, this claim that it's inspired by God. And that implies perfection. The book itself sets a very high bar. The author is God, and if that's so, then it must be perfect. God is the all-powerful being, and he, he is perfect, and so his book must be perfect if he is the author. The next, um, the next scripture we generally look at when we look at the claim of the Bible is 2 Peter 1, verse 21. So if we go to the next slide, please. Thanks, Caleb. And Peter here says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we get a little bit more of an explanation as to how this inspiration worked. The Holy Spirit power of God caused men to write what he wanted to be written down. So we find that there are uh, different people that are writing scripture, but God is in control as the, the ultimate author of the book. And there's a good example in Jeremiah of someone who, who wrote large chunks of scripture, but at a time didn't really want to write. And that's Jeremiah 20, verse 7 to 9. The next slide is this quote from Jeremiah 20, where he says, Oh, Lord, you've deceived me. Jeremiah's getting um, annoyed at God here. He says, you've deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all the day. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision 
all day long. So Jeremiah gets to a point in his life where he says, I don't, I don't want to write anymore. This is, um, this is making me a laughing, laughing stock in front of the people. I don't want to do it anymore. So he says, if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. And so Jeremiah, he can see the distress he's in. He can see his thoughts and feelings, and his intent is clear that God was causing him to write. He, he couldn't stop writing God's word. God compelled him, and through the Holy Spirit, um, power, Jeremiah was writing what God wanted him to write. So this is um, this is how the book came to be written and um, what we need to understand is there are many different people writing uh, parts of scripture and these people come from diverse backgrounds and there are different types of texts that are written and the next slide shows what the Bible really is. It's like a, a library of books, 66 books in all. I'll just get you to click over the next slide there, Carlin. Thanks. So we can see that it's, it's broken up into two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's quite important because often contradictions from the Bible uh, are, are brought one verse out of the Old comparing one verse out of the New and highlighting a contradiction. So we need to understand why there are two different testaments. We can understand that there are different texts that are, or different categories of texts. There's, um, there's law, there's history books, there's letters that were written, there's gospels that were written about the life of Jesus, there's poetry, um, and there's, there's books of prophecy. So understanding this is also key to, to understanding um, scripture and to to um, explaining some apparent contradictions but this isn't any library of books it's a library that's dedicated for to a special purpose that's god's message for mankind and some of these books are written and are to be taken literally and some books are written in sign and symbol like books of prophecy for example the book of revelation so if we're not Understanding that, we can sometimes misinterpret the text, and that often uh, leads to contradictions being brought forward within the scripture. So we need to understand that when we come to this book. Now we just click to the next slide. This is really what, um, when I was thinking about how do I explain what this book is like, well, it's kind of like a conductor of a symphony where God is the conductor, he is bringing all these individuals together who are writing in their separate styles, like the different instruments that are played, all individual instruments that are brought together, yet when they're brought together under the conductorship of God, a, a beautiful symphony is produced, and that really is what the scripture is. It's a beautiful symphony and a harmony of, of spiritual sound, as it were, um, uh, that, that comes together under the, the authorship of God. And I guess the, um, where that is highlighted quite starkly in Scripture is when we have the four Gospels. And the four Gospels, as we know, are all about the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're all records of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. But from four different people and as a result they're all different um, three of them are synoptic gospels and one of them is more of a, a thematic gospel so different writers record based on their perspective what they saw through their eyes and uh, one of them has chosen to write it in a more thematic way and that's the um, the gospel of john so same events, the different eyes and history can legitimate, legitimately be recorded in different ways. We're, um, as most of you know, we're on a, a trip at the moment and we're getting our three boys to write a diary of their, their adventures. And if you read through the three different diaries, which are mainly up to date, um, you'll find three very different diaries 
even though they've all been doing exactly the same thing. And that's because they're looking at what they're doing through different eyes, through different perspectives, and they're telling their own story. So Asher, for example, will pick up on all the, the different animals he sees because he's interested in animals. But Levi loves mechanical things, so he will always write about helicopters and the aeroplanes that he's seen. And it's similar in the Gospels, four different eyes, and they're seeing things from their own perspective, although it's exactly the same events. Now, often as a result, people can pick up contradictions in those different texts, and we'll have a look at one of those contradictions towards the end. So still in this, this subject of the, the context of Scripture, let's have a little think then about the intent of the Bible. As we said, this is a, a special book. It's not just any book. It's not a novel, and it's not intended to be read as a novel. It's a book that's designed to bring people to an understanding of God and to a belief in him and in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Well, it means that there's actually a significant meaning behind what is being recorded. It's a spiritual book. And it's a book that's been written to teach people and a book that's been written to convince people and to change people's lives. And there's not really many other books that are like that. As I said, it's not, it's not a novel. And there's no other book, really, that is like the Bible in its ability to do that. So when the Bible is written, it's not necessarily bound by recording events in a chronological way, although often it does. Some writers don't keep to a chronological order of events because they're writing for a purpose or for a theme, for an intent, a, a, a different intent. They're not just getting across facts and figures. They're trying to get across a deeper message, a spiritual message. So we need to understand that, need to think about that when we, we look at uh, contradictions because some contradictions are raised because of writers perhaps not writing in a chronological way. Further, the Bible is quite honest when it records events in, in history. It's a warts and all account, as it were. It doesn't gloss over the bad parts. For example, in David's life where he commits some what we would call horrendous sins. Um, it, it addresses those in an open and honest way. And um, we need to be aware of that too. The other point I'd make here is that the, the Bible is without error, except when it comes to errors in relation to translation. So we need to understand what we're dealing with here is a very, very old book that was written um, over 2,000 years ago. And as a result, we don't actually have any of the original manuscripts that were written in Greek and Hebrew. What we have today are copies of manuscripts. And then those copies are translated into, um, for most of us, into English. Uh, for the Bibles that we have on our laps today. In fact, one of the amazing, we, we don't have time to go into it, but one of the amazing facts about the Bible is how accurate and how well-preserved the manuscripts have been over those many, many years, despite the fact that they've been copied through history over and over again. And it's in itself is a miracle, and it shows the, the hand of God at work in, in preserving his scripture in his word through time. But when there are translators involved and, and often translating from the Greek or the Hebrew into English, where there have perhaps been some disingenuous translators who have perhaps chosen words that might have been influenced by what they believe uh, without trying to hold true to the original text. So in our English Bible today, there are a couple of places where there are errors in translation. But other than that, we believe what we have today in the, in the Greek and Hebrew texts that have been used to translate into English are, 
are uh, are fairly close to to perfect and then the the English translation that we have on our laps is is largely um, trustworthy almost almost um, entirely trustworthy as I said apart from those a couple of a couple of places all right once once again there's a just a, another one here about how um, how people or historians will record history not every detail is recorded indeed not every detail can be recorded because it would create a book that's too long to, to read. The Bible is summarising approximately 4,000 years of history and um, as a result has to really paraphrase. As John says in, in the last verse of his gospel, he says there are many other things that Jesus did and if every one of them were written down, I suppose the whole world would not have room for the books that could be written. And so when you think about a Bible being a, a book of history, it has to paraphrase. And so, for example, speeches may be a summary of what the actual speech was. So a writer may choose to condense or paraphrase a speech or a section of history. But, it, but in that, trying to get across their point or the, the main um, the main intent of, of what was going on and that's that's commonly done um, through history where historians have done that that's, this is not unique to the bible but in that there can be um, there can be contradictions that people raise as a result of that In saying that, though, because it is a, a paraphrase, every word is important and, and carefully selected by the writer in order to get across the intended message. Um, so that, for, for Bible scholars, makes it exciting because there is import in everything that has been, been written. When we sort of put all that together and just think about how broad the Bible is and the different categories, the different styles, the different writers from different backgrounds over a significant number of years, 1,500 years that the Bible was written, condensing 4,000 years of history, you would expect the book to be riddled with error and inconsistencies. Indeed, if it was written by man, it would be. Yet those of us who have read the Bible and, and studied the Bible will know that the, the text is amazingly and impressively consistent. Um, not only is it consistent, but it's complex with deeply interwoven themes that run right through scripture, multiple themes. And when you look at that, you can't help but be impressed by the authenticity and by the authorship of this book. And as I said, it becomes one of the great proofs of the Bible. Okay, so that's, I think, um, just helpful context in understanding the book. And it's useful because it helps us when we come to look at some of the contradictions that, that are put to us um, out of the Bible by atheists in particular. Okay, let's have a look then at what um, the American Atheist website has. So if we just click to the next slide, Caleb, I think it's the next slide. Okay, here's now from the American Atheist's website. Um, they list a whole bunch of Bible contradictions and after a list of about 15 or so Bible quotes and contradictions, they come to this conclusion. What is incredible about the Bible is not its divine authorship, it's that such a concoction of contradictory nonsense could be believed by anyone to have been written by an omniscient God. To do so, one would first have to not read the book, which is the practice of most Christians, or if one does read it, dump it in the trash can, uh, dump in the trash can one's rational intelligence to become a fool for God, in other words. To be an atheist, one need only be able to laugh when such obvious nonsense is offered as being divine truth. 
Now, that's a fairly um, a fairly pointed and um, uh, and uh, I guess for for Bible believers, um, quite a confronting conclusion to read, um, and one that I would at least one that I don't have to laugh at because we get a, a verse in scripture that helps us. Um, Psalm 14 verse 1 is God talking to this sort of a conclusion. He says in Psalm 14 verse 1, the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. I think um, looking at that conclusion and hopefully we can go, we'll go through some of these contradictions that are raised, um, we'll see that that's a pretty superficial and unintelligent conclusion that has been reached by the American Atheist Society. So let's have a look at some of the contradictions that they called out and we're going to just click to the next slide, Caleb. Here is um, the first three of the contradictions that they raise before coming to that conclusion. The first one here is around the Sabbath day. So they raise it, two quotes, and as I said, this is quite common that they raise one quote from the Old Testament and one quote from the New Testament um, and not understand the, the differences between the two. So the first one they call from Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we know from uh, our looking at scripture that Exodus 20 is where Moses gives the Ten Commandments. And it was Moses that gave these Ten Commandments from God and he gave them to the children of Israel. And note this important, that was given to the nation of Israel only. God at that time was working through his nation Israel. And the law that was given is sometimes referred to as the, the law of Moses or the old law, indicating that there is a, a new law too. And it's important when we um, come to scripture that we understand and, and look into this because on the surface, if we have no understanding of scripture, when we read Romans 14 verse 5, we might see what appears to be a contradiction where Paul says to the Romans here, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So, it would seem here that Paul's saying it doesn't matter about keeping the Sabbath day. And indeed, that's, that's what Paul is saying. But let's have a look at the context in Romans 14. Romans was written by Paul, as we said, after our Lord Jesus Christ, at a time when uh, our Lord had brought in a new law and also at a time where Paul was talking to a group of believers who were both Jew and Gentile. And so what we know is that those who were Jewish believers were holding on to some of their older traditions, like the Sabbath day and some of the other traditions that um, had, had become um, superseded by, by Christ, which we'll, we'll have a look at. However, some of the newer believers, the, the Gentiles, um, hadn't been brought up with those traditions and hadn't been brought up under the law of Moses. And so for them, they, they didn't have this issue with keeping of the Sabbath day. And the New Testament explains to us how Christ fulfilled the law by keeping it perfectly and so issued in a new law, thus freeing us from the old law. And Galatians 3 um, talks about that quite clearly. So we can go to scripture here to help understand this apparent contradiction scripture explains itself galatians 3 verse 24 and 25 i don't have this on screen but you can look it up if you like galatians 3 we know this quite well it says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto christ so the law of moses it's talking about as being a schoolmaster or something to teach us and to lead us to christ that we might be justified by faith so really, faith was, was the end intent. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. 
So Galatians there is explaining that, that now that we have Christ who fulfilled the law, we've been freed from that old law of Moses and we now operate under the law of Christ. And, and under that law, the Sabbath day as a, a day to, to keep, like under the old law, dropped away. And Paul here in Romans is encouraging his readers not to judge other believers. He says, don't judge other, other people for something that is, is no longer required to be kept. The Sabbath day is no longer law, so it's up to the individual. If you want to keep it, that's fine. But if someone else doesn't, don't judge them for that. And so what we can do here by understanding Scripture and understanding uh, and, and letting Scripture interpret itself and looking at the context, we can then decipher what looks to be a contradiction and conclude that this is an apparent contradiction. But you have to dig into the message. You have to understand scripture. You can't just look at this on the surface, which is what, um, what's been done here um, in, in just putting these two quotes side by side and saying that there's a contradiction. Let's have a look at the second one. The second one is talking about the permanence of the earth. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4 says that the earth abideth forever. And in 2 Peter, we have a quote here that shows or tells us that the elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So they're on this, again, pulling out a quote from the Old Testament and pulling out a quote from the New Testament. Not that there's any um, Old Testament, New Testament understanding that, that helps us explain this one. But let's have a look at the context of each of these verses because, again, it's the context that helps us understand this apparent contradiction. Does the earth abide forever or is the earth going to be burned up and destroyed? Okay, so Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4, the context here is Solomon is making a general observation based on history and based on his life, looking back over time, not looking forward, but looking back over time and saying that the earth has abided forever. Now, here we have uh, what, what I would call an observation to make a point that, that Solomon's making in Ecclesiastes. I wouldn't call this a, a foundation statement on the eternal permanency of the earth. Now, why I say that is because I'm trying to make a point here that even though his point is true, the, the earth abides forever and it, and it will abide forever, you have to be careful where you make a, um, an assertion um, from Scripture. Is it something, is the teaching that's been presented a fundamental teaching that is designed uh, to teach a fundamental principle about the earth, or is it just a comment, um, a passing comment? And in this case, it is just a passing comment to make a, a separate point. Nonetheless, Solomon's point is, is valid. Um, so let's have a look then at, the, at a context in 2 Peter 3 verse 10. And we'll just look up 2 Peter 3 verse 10 to get the, the context here because I don't have it on the slide. If you come across to 2 Peter. Okay, 2 Peter uh, 3 verse 10 where he says at the start of that verse, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. What is the day of the Lord that Peter is talking about? Well, we need further context, and we find that in verse 7, where Peter says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So the day of the Lord here is explained for us in the same chapter, and it's talking about the day of judgment. And we know from, from Scripture that this is the day our Lord Jesus Christ will return to the earth to judge um, the righteous and the ungodly. But in this context, Peter's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ coming in judgment against the ungodly. And so when we come back to verse 10, we can see what the what the judgment of the ungodly will be like. That's what is being described. 
But the day of the Lord, verse 10, will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also with the works that are therein shall be burned up. So in fact, if you were to take this literally, you'd have to say that the whole shebang, the whole universe, the heavens and the earth are all going to be burned up. Is that really what Peter's talking about? Well, clearly not. Clearly what Peter is describing here is the wicked being judged and their works on earth will be destroyed. All that they stand for will be utterly consumed. And it describes, while it describes the earth being burned, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's being destroyed, even if that's what Peter meant, uh, which I, I don't necessarily think that that's what he's saying. But even if it is, if you, you know, if you take that literally, it doesn't say that the earth is being destroyed. So the two can happily abide together. But once again, um, you need to establish the context. Now, if we go a bit further on in, in that chapter, down to verse 13, if we were at any doubt as to whether the earth is, is being destroyed or not, we can see in verse 13 that it's not, because in, it tells us there that nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So quite clearly, earth isn't being destroyed. It's being renewed. We're going to have a new earth that is full of righteousness with no wickedness. And so what, we, what you can establish by the context, uh, both before the quote and after the quote, is quite clearly um, uh, explaining that the contradiction that they've raised is, is not actually a contradiction at all. It's an apparent contradiction that completely ignores the context and the message behind what Peter is talking about. So again, just a surface contradiction. And that's what we find with all of these contradictions. There is always um, on the surface, without digging into it, you find there, there may be a contradiction, but when you look at it and look at the context, it's quite clear there is no contradiction. The third one is the same. Um, let's quickly have a look at this about seeing God. Well, in Genesis 32, it's about Jacob where he says, I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And then in John 1, we're told that no man has seen God at any time. So how do we marry up this? Has Jacob seen God and, or, or hasn't he seen God or, or has he seen God and survived? And, and so John is incorrect and there's a contradiction. Well, if we look Actually, at the record in Genesis, there's, there's a contradiction deliberately written within, um, within the record. In verse 24, and if, if you want to turn up, you can, but you don't need to. It says in verse 24 that Jacob wrestled a man, which is then described in verse 30 as Jacob wrestling God. So we've got a contradiction within the chapter itself. Was he wrestling man or was he wrestling God? Further to this in Hosea 12, verse 3 and 4, where there's a reference back to this incident of Jacob wrestling, it says there that he struggled with God, or the Elohim, and he struggled with an angel. So there's a contradiction in, in Hosea 2. Is it, was he struggling with God, or was he struggling with an angel? Or was he struggling with a man? So we've got three options. So how do we piece that all together? Well, the word God in Hosea is the word Elohim, and also in, the, in um, Genesis, it's the word Elohim, which is the plural, which is often used in reference to the angels representing God in his work. And we can confirm by um, Hosea that it wasn't God himself. This was an angel or malak or messenger uh, that was representing God on this occasion. So an angel that appeared as a man, represented God. And so we can see that the, the three uh, descriptions of who this person was can, can be married up in this way. Uh, and it um, appears and it explains this apparent contradiction. So Jacob hadn't seen Yahweh himself, and thus there's, there's no contradiction between Genesis 32 and John 1. 
All right, the next one I wanted to look at is I think going to be our last contradiction, and that's the inscriptions on the cross. So if we just have a look at the next slide, and this is a, a very common contradiction that is put forward um, between the four Gospels. So the next slide is um, I've got here the four um, the four records, gospel records, and what they say the inscription on the cross is. So we just click over onto that. Um, Cassie might need to give Caleb a prod. Thanks, Caleb. Okay, inscriptions on the cross. Here are the four records, and here's what they say. One says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Another record says that the inscription on the cross was the King of the Jews. Another one says, this is the King of the Jews. And the, the fourth record says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Seemingly four completely different titles, similar in some ways, but different in others, that were written above our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And atheists point to this and say, well, where's the authenticity and the infallibility of scriptures here on the surface a good question but if we just click again code we'll write these all in a slightly different way the four records saying exactly what the records say but just putting some space in all of a sudden we can see perhaps what the answer to this might be so if we click again Perhaps what was written on the cross was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And so the writers of the gospel records in paraphrasing history have written a condensed version, perhaps, some of them more than others, some of them less than others, but nonetheless not contradictory at all. The full inscription may have been, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. We also note the context of the the scripture where it tells us that it was written in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. So there were actually three different inscriptions written in three different languages. Luke's, Luke and John's record tell us that. So perhaps it, it may have been, although um, probably less likely, that maybe they were interpreting a, a different language when they were recording their their eyewitness view of events. Although that's probably less likely, they were probably um, re recording or re repeating what they would know as, as Greek, but we don't know if they knew Latin or, or Hebrew as well. So I think we can see when piece, piecing all that together, there's no contradiction at all. Um, we just have to understand how people write history and how they've, they've recorded from their point of view. Okay, I just want to spend the last couple of minutes just thinking about how we then approach the Bible. So what I've hopefully done is through four examples shown that contradictions, common contradictions that are raised by atheists can be answered. There, there is, there is a, a logical answer and it involves understanding the context and it involves understanding the message, which... I would say that most atheists don't do. So the next question, I'm going to be a little bit provocative um, in, in line with the statement of the atheist. So if we just go to the next slide, and the question is, are we genuine in our approach to looking at Bible contradictions? Atheists use Bible contradictions as a reason not to believe. But I would argue, and my experience, though limited, is um, would indicate that in general, Bible contradictions are used by atheists as an excuse not to believe rather than a reason not to believe. It's really an excuse. Atheists are generally not interested in understanding the context or the message. Now, that's not true for all atheists. There are some who are well studied, some who were believers who've become atheists. But in general, uh, for most atheists, they dismiss the Bible without looking at the context or the message, and it's simply an excuse. So they take the contradiction at face value and, and use that as an excuse not to have to look deeper at the message. And when you're then dealing with atheists, it's often um, a bit like putting out spot fires. Um, 
you can put out one spot fire, you can answer one contradiction, but they can put another contradiction before you. And it, it then becomes difficult to debunk this view of, of one who doesn't want to believe and is convinced that there are many contradictions in the Bible. You answer one, another's thrown out, and as long as they've got one more con contradiction than you have time to answer, then their view that the Bible's not trustworthy holds true, at least in, in their mind. So it's a bit like dealing with, with spot fires. It's, it's not a very... Um, it's not a very easy task to, to debate with someone who just simply does not want to believe. So the question is, are we genuine? And I put that to the atheists. Are you genuine in looking at the Bible or are you just not really wanting to believe? As I say, it's not to say that all the contradictions cannot be answered because I believe they can be if we spend the time to look at them. And as we've shown, it doesn't take much when you look at the context to answer and to come to a satisfactory answer. It's simply to, to, to point out that, that this firefighting approach is likely to be unfruitful um, when it comes to answering atheists. And God has actually done this by design and he makes no excuses for this because God is seeking out a people who want to seek him and want to serve him. And I'll put one more quote up just to, to conclude. And that's from Proverbs 25, verse 2. We'll just click on to the next slide. Thanks, Caleb, and yet one more. Proverbs 25, verse 2 says this, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honour of kings is to search out a matter. God's looking for people to be kings in his kingdom to come. And he wants us to search out a matter. And God's telling us quite clearly here, he's, He's concealed and he's made it such that we have to dig into the message. We have to understand what and, and genuinely seek out his message to be able to find it. So what is it? What is our approach? And that's, I guess, the, the challenge that we need to put to people who are throwing contradictions at us or if you're throwing contradictions um, around in your mind. Are you genuine um, and actually trying to decipher the consistency of the Bible without bias? Are we simply looking for contradictions so that we can dismiss the message? Or alternatively, we could, we could be ignoring or glossing over contradictions to hold on to our pre-existing belief of the Bible. But for me, and I guess having re-examined the subject again, uh, not, not for the first time, um, and amidst all the other proofs of the existence of God, I, I remain convinced of the authenticity and accuracy of the Holy Scriptures, God's word of truth that has the power to change our life for good.